0: You can be seated. I'm going to ask Derek Ruth to come right now. Derek's a member of our church. He's going to come and read Scripture and pray for us this morning. And after he does that, we'll uh, be taking up the morning offering, and our children will be dismissed for Children's Church. So, Derek, come and do that for us, please.
1: morning. I'll be reading from uh, three different places. The first is Proverbs 28, verse 13. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Next, I will be in uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And lastly, I'll be in a Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to to gather and worship you. Thank you for the great hope we have in, we have because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Father, I ask you to give us the courage to hold each other accountable and to be good witnesses to your name. I ask that you be with Pastor Steve today as he gives us your word. Father, I ask that you help him be speak your word boldly. Father, we are thankful for all that you give us. In your name, I pray. Amen. To come right
0: now, they're helping with morning offering. And children, you can be dismissed for Children's Church. Great job. Is that Leah Fowler up here playing? Good job, Leah. Thank you so much for doing that for for Jesus. I want to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, Please take your Bible if you would and stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word together. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read through these 13 verses. Verse 1, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you know, do you not know that a little laven lavens the whole lump? Verse seven. Cleanse out the old laven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank You for again that we'd meet here today. Thank You for Your Word. God, we ask that You would speak to us from Your Word this morning. Though redeemed, we still yet sin. And it could be, Father, that our sinning might lead us to a place where we might not want to repent. Father, I pray that we would feel the weight of this warning and this love that's in this passage of Scripture reminding us that You're the God who does not want a professing believer to continue in this sin. That wants their soul to be saved And so you love us by giving us the church and giving us the church the authority to practice discipline when necessary. Oh God, thank you for being this loving God, this holy God. May we be the dwelling place you would have us to be here in Mount Carmel as we seek to make disciples right here where we live and around the world. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Legalist, Pharisees. Hypocrites. Holier than thou. Arrogant. Those are the words that are often waged At the church, when the church speaks about sin, that the church is holier than thou, legalist, Pharisees, hypocrites, and sometimes those words are rightly waged against the church. Sometimes we are Pharisaical and we are hypocritical at times, legalistic, and thinking that we're better than others and have forgotten the gospel. Sometimes we're arrogant. Paul says in this letter that he writes, and God says through him that the church at Corinth, which was what this first Corinthians letter was written to. It was written to a local church called the church Church at Corinth. Paul says the church at Corinth is arrogant, but for the opposite reason that some would say Christians can be arrogant or holier than thou. Hypocrites. Paul says the church at Corinth is arrogant, and God says the church at times can be arrogant because it overlooks sin in its midst and does nothing about it. He says that because there's a shameful report to a shameful response to sin in the church. That's what we see in verse 1 and 2 if you look at your Bible. A shameful report to a shameful response to sin in the church. Notice what he says in verse 1. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality. You'll find in verse 3 and verse 4 that Paul was writing this letter, but he was not in Corinth at the time. He was a distance away from this. And let that be a, just a lesson real quick for us. It's easier to see things as black and white as we should in relation to this topic when we're not as emotionally connected. But when we're emotionally connected to something, we tend to blur the lines and make things a little grayer than often what they should be and unwilling to do what we should do because we're so emotionally connected. Paul, in verse 3 and 4, says, I'm not there, but I, I don't have to be there. I've already pronounced judgment. It is black and white. This is wrong. And you are arrogant, church, for not doing anything about it. He says it's actually reported. Do you see that in verse 1? It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. Now, sexual immorality, bad enough as it is, he says this sexual immorality is of a kind that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. So it's not just sexual immorality, which would need to be addressed in the church. But it is of a kind that even lost people in that day and lost people in our day would not tolerate. And it's the sin of incest. It says that a man has his father's wife. The end of verse 1. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 11 makes it clear that that's a sin. Under the old covenant. We're, we're not under the old covenant, by the way. We're under the new covenant. But the moral obligations of the Old Covenant are binding upon us. We still look to Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture, for what we believe and practice, how to live our life. Amen? And so when we look at that passage of Scripture and see it black and white and clear in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, we can see that the sin of incest is clearly wrong. Now, there's continuity and discontinuity with the Old Covenant community. First, there's continuity in that God... Dwells among His people. So in the Old Testament, there was this community of people that met together. We're a community of people that meet together. A covenant community through Jesus. In the Old Testament, they were a covenant community because of the old covenant given through Moses. And they lived in the same place as a nation. So there's continuity and there's discontinuity. We don't live together as as a nation called the church. All right? With our own rulers and everything ruling over us and, and we having civil laws and ceremonial, civil laws, even ceremonial laws. So much has changed. But there's continuity. God dwelt among the Old Testament people, right? Where did He dwell at? He dwelt in the tabernacle. He dwelt later in the temple. And there's continuity with that now in the church through Jesus. God dwells in the temple. Discontinuity though, it's not this building, it's you. It's those who are believers. God dwells in his people. And what we see three times in this passage of Scripture verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 13, among you is used three times. You see the little phrase among you? It's actually a report there's sexual immorality among you. Three times in this passage of Scripture, Paul is appalled to hear a report. That word has gotten to him but this is a public matter and it has gotten to him wherever he is at at the time from writing this letter that among God's people there is such sin that's tolerated that even lost people normally would not tolerate. We've said for a few weeks now, based on Ephesians chapter 2, that the church made up of all true believers is God's dwelling place tells us that in Ephesians chapter 2 you are God's dwelling place And a local church like the church at Corinth and a local church like First Baptist Church of Mount Carmel we're a local manifestation of God's holy dwelling place we are to be shining as lights in this community in which we live God's holy dwelling place saying something about who God is, a unique people, a holy people, a people called out from among the world. And so you can see that supposedly being true with the church at Corinth when Paul says, this is happening among you, you're God's holy dwelling place, yet there is sin among you, unrepentant sin that's not being dealt with by you. It's shameful, he says. And so the church must respond like Jesus, like Christ, to sin in the church. That's the message this morning. Responding like Christ to sin in the church. And it requires three things when I look at this passage of Scripture. First thing it requires is right attitudes about sin in the church. If we're going to respond like Christ to sin in the church, it requires right attitudes about sin in the church. To respond like Jesus is to have a right attitude. How did Jesus respond to sin in the physical building called the temple when they were selling stuff and cheating people out of money? Why, He took a whip and He ran them out. He was not arrogant. He did not overlook it. He didn't say, We have freedom. And so let's flaunt our freedom and do what we want to do. He dealt with it. He disciplined them. And He ran them out. And what's the Bible tell us about our attitude towards sin? If we're to be like Christ, we're to have a right attitude about sin in the church. What's it say in this passage of Scripture? Are you looking at it? Verse 2. And you are arrogant, Ought you not rather to mourn you're arrogant, aren't you not ready to mourn? It's possible that what was going on in the Corinthian believers' minds, in their arrogance, they were saying, hey, we, we're we free in Jesus. We have, uh, And therefore, we have a license to do whatever we want to do. I mean, that's an extreme, what you call antinomianism against the law. I'm not for sure that's how they're, what there was in their thought processes. But either way, he says, they were prideful and arrogant, unwilling to do what needed to be done. And rather, they should have mourned. It should have upset them. Not something to be celebrated, but something to be dealt with. A right attitude leads to right action. And so what does the Bible say about it in verse 2? What does your Bible say? That when a church member is unrepentant, what's the Bible say to do about it in verse 2? I'm not asking you what you feel like you should do, but what's your Bible say to do about it? Verse 2, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. A right attitude about sin in the church is to mourn over it, to be upset that it's happening. Not to gossip about it. Not to be eager to discipline someone about it. But to mourn that it's happening. And then that right attitude of mourning leads to a right action And in that case, in some cases, in this case, for sure, it meant removal of this member from the church. So right attitudes about sin in the church. There's a lot of confusion about love in our world and redefining love. They were misapplying grace, possibly here in this passage of Scripture, and how it applies, we're saved by grace, so do anything you want. Maybe that's how they were thinking. But they were probably also misapplying love. At least I know that often happens in practice in our culture and a lot of times in the church. What are we reminded of in Ephesians chapter 4? Just preached on it a few weeks ago to speak the truth in love. Sometimes our idea of love comes, comes from the world and not by, from, from God. God doesn't overlook sin. He deals with it. He dealt with it through Jesus. Any, any, any questions about how serious God takes sin, just, just look at the cross that we sung about this morning and understand. So there must be right attitudes about sin in the church. But secondly, there must be right aims in disciplining the church. When the church, the local church, needs to be disciplined, there needs to be a right aim what What's the outcome of this? What are we aiming for here? Just to get this person? We're upset at them, so we just want to get them? No, that, that's not it, obviously. hope Maybe it's not so obvious, though. That's the reason Scripture gives it to us here. What are the right aims and discipline in the church? Two things. Number one, aim for the salvation of the church member. Amen, church? Aim for the salvation of the church member. And verses 3-5 through five have some things that are... Difficult to know exactly how to apply. But first of all, in verse 3-4, through Paul again is saying, Look, I'm not there myself, but I don't have to be to know that this is wrong. It needs to be dealt with. I'm not emotionally connected like some of you are, or swept up in the culture perhaps like some of them were, or their theological liberalism like some of them were, but I don't have to be. It's black and white. This man's committing incest. He has his father's wife, which means that it doesn't say his, his mother. It says his father's wife. So it means that this man was with probably his stepmother which is clearly wrong, clearly sinful. And he says it has his father's wife, not had. He's unrepentant in it. So it's black and white. I've already made the judgment myself. So without me even being there, just just in in spirit, I'm telling you, and and in the power of the Lord Jesus, what's he say to do? He says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Do you see that? What in the world does that mean? Do we as a local church have the power to deliver one to Satan? Well, Jesus certainly does. It says, with the, present with the power of the Lord Jesus, Jesus certainly does. God certainly is powerful over Satan. I want you to understand that. And so in this exercise of the church's responsibility to exercise discipline, there is God sovereignly using Satan... To hopefully save this individual, he says, "Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh." Some people mean think that means when this person's disciplined, that that person who professes to be a Christian, who's no longer part of the church, is going to be physically suffering because it says destruction of the flesh. I, along with a lot of other commentators and so forth i, I kind of agree with I think it it deals more with the fact of it's the misery of conviction the misery of being separated from that that covenant community like they were in the old testament if you sin declared unclean uh, even you would be placed outside the camp you wouldn't enjoy the fellowship of the covenant community continuity we're a covenant community through jesus we don't live in the same camp together we all go to separate homes right but in this covenant community here that all the fellowship and joy that we share If there's a sinning member among us, unrepentant, then it could lead to that person being removed from our fellowship. You're not welcome here anymore. Let that sink in. Let that sink into that individual that it's being said to. You're not welcome among God's people. That's to be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. When David, the psalmist... Was under conviction. You read in Psalm 32, he said, My flesh, I, I, my, my, my flesh was, my, my energy was just sapped away like the fever heat of summer, it says in Psalm 32. He couldn't sing. He was a psalmist and he couldn't even sing anymore. He was miserable because of his sin. And I think, at least in part, that's what happens, it's supposed to happen when sin is disciplined by the church the way that it's supposed to be. And there's some role in which Satan is being used in that. We see that it's not the first time Job in his trial, Satan's given permission. Don't put your hand on him, you know. But Satan's given permission by God to do this. And then God through that shows Job something about who God is and about his own heart. Paul's given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to teach him about God's grace that God's grace is sufficient. We're told in, I believe it's um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, Paul said, Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may be, be learned not to blaspheme. So here we see in some good news this morning. Scripture says, Satan roams around the earth seeking whom he may devour. Doesn't it? That's a warning Good news, folks, when we look at these verses I just quoted in the verse right here, God's, God's sovereign over Satan, all right? Satan was soundly defeated at the cross. He's in his death throes, and lo, his doom is sure. So fear God. Fear, fear the one that can destroy the soul in hell. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. The right aims for discipline of the church, though, is aim for the salvation of the church members. So look at verse four, look at verse five. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, verse five. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that when Jesus comes back, that person's going get, to get saved then become converted when Jesus comes back on that day. Know that when the day of the Lord comes, when Jesus comes on the day of judgment, that person will have been saved, for surely saved. And part of the means of that is he was in a church family that loved him enough to go to him, confront him about his unrepentant sin, discipline him by handing him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And God used whatever mysterious role Satan plays in that to bring this person to true salvation or to a place of repentance. Restoration is the goal, and that 's what Brother Derek read this morning in Galatians chapter six Is restoration is the goal. Galatians chapter six verse one says, "Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness so church family that 's what the aim is the aim is Restoration. The aim is the salvation of that professing believer. I say professing believer. It could be the person's not a true Christian. They're lost. There's certainly not confidence on the church's part to say that person's to just say, "Well, yeah, we still believe he's a Christian," (laughs) and he's with he's in unrepentant sin. He's with his mother and stepmother. So, aim for the salvation of the church member. Secondly, aim for the purity of the church. Aim for the purity of the church. Now, I love homemade bread. And I sure was appreciated during Pastor Appreciation Month with some different things. And I appreciate those different expressions. You're welcome to appreciate me anytime. Homemade bread, they put that laven in there. They put that yeast in there and it makes it rise. Spreads throughout the dough, right? And spreads throughout and infects that dough and put it in the oven and it rises. If you don't put it in there, what's going to happen? You don't put no yeast, no leaven in there. It's going to be eating like eating that communion bread Didn't we have the Lord's Supper. How many of you enjoy eating that? Especially in these gluten free ones we got now. Now, I'm not trying to be silly about the Lord's Supper. I mean we we take part in the unleavened bread to remind us of the Passover we're going to get to in a moment. But the fact is, is look at look at your Bible there and you'll you'll see why I say that verse six. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little laven lavens the whole lump? So you put just a little yeast, a little a little laven in the dough, and it just spreads all the way through it just a little bit and infects the whole lump, right? One bad apple makes a whole, whole, whole bunch bad, right? So he's saying here, this needs to be dealt with because it has an effect upon the church as a whole when sin goes left unchecked. Other people look at that and say, well, hey... If he's with his stepmother, well, I ain't near as bad looking at my pornography on the computer. I'm not near as bad as that. I might as well go ahead and keep on smoking pot or keep on talking bad to my wife. ain't near as bad as being with somebody not my wife. You see how the Thought processes can go when sin it affects the whole bunch. I remember, uh, when I was in school, they still spanked and paddled. Teachers had paddles all the way up till I was in eighth grade. They were, if you a, they'd still spank you even in eighth grade. We had a teacher in the sixth grade. Mr. Cross was his name. And he had this paddle, this wooden paddle. And everybody knew about it. All the way through elementary school, I was like, Mom, I don't want Mr. Cross when I get in sixth grade. Don't give me Mr. Cross. And he had this paddle. And the rumor was not only did he have holes in the power that sucked the air off of you when it come off of you, but he had nail heads in his paddle. <laughs> that was a rumor. I don't want Mr. Cross. Mr. Cross's paddle was to serve to cause fear so that the misbehavior of one student would not infect the whole class in a much, much greater way. God doesn't want His whole church infected because of the unrepentant, undealt-with sin of one believer. So look at your Bible in verse 7. Verse 7 says this, First of all, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really... So he's applying this in a spiritual way now. For Christ, our Passover lamb's been sacrificed. So let's talk about that for just a moment. He talks about the the festival of Passover. And so back in the day when God's people were in slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, God said, here's some plagues, Egyptians. And the Egyptians finally got it when the death of the firstborn took place. When I see the blood over your doorway, I'll pass over you. So they killed a lamb, slit its throat, took the lamb's blood, put it over the doorway. Death angel sees it, passes over them. They don't they don't die. Then God says, "Moses, Pharaoh's going to let them go now. Pack up all your stuff. You don't have time. You need to take some bread with you, but you don't have time to bake it. So don't put any leaven in your bread." Because you don't have time for it to bake and for it to rise and all that kind of stuff. I mean, just bake it maybe, but not for it to rise. You just, you just get you some unleavened bread and take with you. So later on, after God delivers them, to remind them that how God had delivered them from the old way of life, slavery under Pharaoh, God said, you observe Passover. Every year you observe Passover at the same time. And you do some of the same things, and one of the things they were supposed to do is sacrifice a lamb. But another thing they were supposed to do is before they sacrificed the Passover lamb, they were to go do a search and destroy through the home. And any yeast, any laven that they found, they were supposed to scrape the bowls and, and, and anything they'd been... It's okay to use it at other times, but during the Passover, they couldn't have it in their home. So get rid of it before the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Because you want, to, you want to do this to remind you you're not part of that old way of life anymore. That God's redeemed you from slavery to Egypt. Now what the Bible says here is cleanse out the old leaven. He says to the church. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unlaven. He's saying you are like that, 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 that dough, And you're not to have any leaven in you at, at all ever. They sacrificed Passover once a year. They celebrated Passover. They got rid of their their yeast and leaven that remind them of life. But for you, Christ is our Passover. He's been sacrificed once for all. So you are to continually, every single day, not a moment ever go by, that you're not celebrating that Christ is the Passover. So you should never have any yeast, any leaven, any sin in your midst. So three times in this passage of Scripture, when it says, among you, among you, among you, he's saying, it shouldn't be that way. There should never be a time, in light of the fact that Jesus has died for His church, there should never be any, any leaven, any yeast which represents sin spreading throughout the church it all. Continually be dealt with, continually celebrate the feast of Jesus and His sacrifice by dealing with sin continually. Notice what he says in verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven. In other words, not with sin undealt with in our midst. That's the reason we take part in the Lord's Supper, for example. I say, listen, we're warned in Scripture. If we have unrepentant sin in our life, that very realistically could be impacting the church. I'm going to warn you based on 1 Corinthians 11, don't take part in the Lord's Supper. If you have unrepentant sin in your life, that's affecting the church. Because some sleep and some have died. Some have died. Some are sick because of that. First Corinthians chapter 11 says that. Not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, we should always seek to be a people, individually yet corporately as a church, together as a church community, as First Baptist Church, we should seek to be that holy dwelling place always. Never lacks... Towards sin in our midst, never. It contradicts, it may feel like love to overlook things, but it is not, based on what God 's word says. So there must be right attitudes about sin in the church, but secondly, there must be right aims and discipline in the church. You've got to aim for the salvation of the church member, secondly, but you 've got to aim for the purity of the church. The purity of the church to the glory of God because it will infect the whole church. Thirdly and lastly, if we're going to respond like Christ has sin in the church, there must be right associations inside and outside the church. Inside and outside the church, how we associate with people. Those should be right, just like Jesus would, like our God does. How must we deal with, with unrepentant sinners outside the church that are not professing to know the Lord Jesus. And we see sin in their life and we observe that. What's verse 9 and 10 say about this? I wrote to you in my letter, so there was some previous letter that's, that's, that's lost and that's okay. Uh, that, they probably, Paul probably wrote a lot of letters that, that were lost, that weren't inspired by God. He's just letting them know about another letter he wrote. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So if you're going to do business in the world, if you're going to be in the workplace, if you're going to be a witness to the world, how how does Christ relate? How does He associate with sinners in the world? How does God associate with sinners in the world? Well, you say, well, preacher, He wipes out Jericho. Yeah, God judges the world. He judges those outside. Yet He saved Rahab, who graciously heard that Yahweh's people were coming. He saved her. He had mercy upon that Gentile. She's she's listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Listen, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And so when Jesus comes, He makes that explicitly clear. He clears the temple but he goes to some of the same people, these sinners, and he goes to people like Zacchaeus, and he eats with sinners. He's called a friend of sinners. He came to seek and to save those which are lost. He has associations in the world. And so we must as well. So Paul's not talking about judging those outside the church. It's not that we wouldn't say to a lost person though, listen, uh, I-, I wish you'd come to church sometime. I wish you'd get saved and Listen, these things going in your life, you know that's sin against God. If we've got to talk to people about sin in their life, if we're going to tell them the gospel, otherwise you're not telling them the gospel. The, bad news, the good news is not good news unless it's bad news first. But, but as far as making some final judgment about them, that's not our responsibility. We should expect lost people to act like lost people. And yes, we can go to somebody that's not saved and say to them, in love, look... If you don't repent and turn to Christ, I, I'm not judging. I'm just telling you the truth. You will you will go to hell. We should expect lost people to act like lost people, but we should expect saved people to act like saved people. That's why we have a church covenant. And that's you know kind of new in our church. The covenant's not, but it's been new that we've been reading it prior to the Lord's Supper often. Um, why, why are we doing that? Well, just be honest, because a lot of people don't even know we have one. And there's a lot of Baptist churches have church covenants that don't even know they have one. As, uh, we, we've not always done good as a church family in our past of letting people know what church membership is and what it is they're doing when they join the church. I, I've run into people here in our church. It's not just this church, by the way. It's other churches I've been at. They didn't even know they were a church member. They didn't know they got voted on. They got baptized. The next thing they knew somebody called them a church member, they don't even know what church membership is and in church membership's been rendered meaningless kind of across the board. And so part of the purpose for preaching these sermons I've been preaching since September is to correct that. If we're going to be make disciples the way we're supposed to, then we have to be healthy inside. So there has to be right associations inside and outside the church. So how must we deal with professing believers within the church, that church covenant says this is what we believe and how the Bible says to live our lives. So let's agree to hold each other accountable to that. How must we deal with professing believers within the church? Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone, not to associate with anyone who does what? What's your Bible say? You're looking at your Bible? Who bears the name of brother. It doesn't say they are brother. It says they bear the name of brother. Some translations say a so-called Brother. So here's somebody that calls himself a Christian. They're identified with that particular local church. They profess; they're a professing believers. They profess to know Christ, whether or not they truly do. Nobody really knows because of how this person's living their life. They bear the name of brother. So he's talking about people dealing with people within the church. This is his topic. And you remember the Salem witch trials, witch hunts, and how that got out of hand back in the day, right? The church is not. In this topic, responding like Christ to sin in the church is not a witch hunt. Do you understand that? It's not a witch hunt going looking for trouble in people's lives. So, for just a moment, what kind of sins will lead to church discipline? Well, we ought to all be listening real closely right now. Because if we're we're really going to get serious about applying this as a church family, man, our ears ought to perk up because I I know about you and I know about me. I sin every day. So what kind of sins should be disciplined by the church in which that person should be removed and handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the soul might be saved. So let's listen up. Look with me at verse 11 first of all and notice he's not just talking about sexual immorality or, incest or the sin of incest. Verse 11 says this, but Now I'm writing to you not to associate anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. And that's not to meant to be a comprehensive list. That, that's just some examples. Not to even eat with such a one, he says, which I take mean not to fellowship with them, and refuse to give them the Lord's Supper. Three things Jonathan Lehman points out, and I agree with. I think they're implicit here and pretty obvious at the same time. What kinds of sins will lead to church discipline? Well, number one, significant. A significant sin reason I say that is, all right, well, I know somebody in the church and they're gossiping all the time. Okay, so we're going to discipline people for gossip, kick them out of the church, hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh because they're a gossip. That's a, all sin is significant, all right? We're talking about something that's clearly obvious, weighty, impacting, infecting the church. It calls for a lot of wisdom, doesn't it? It's, it's not always an easy thing. There are some are clear cases and others. And some, you need to slow down and take them case by case. Significant. Secondly, outward. Outward. So, something that it's not just we perceive about somebody, but it's clear. I mean, this man's with his father's wife and everybody knows about it. Or a lot of people know about it. You know, you, it's outward. You know, it's out. People, it's bringing reproach upon Christ. Thirdly, and maybe the most difficult is unrepentant to discern. Most difficult to discern is unrepentant. So significant outward, thirdly, unrepentant. Notice back in the verse, I think it's verse 2 maybe, it says, This man has his father's wife, present tense. There's been no repentance about it, no change. This man has his father's wife. I know of a situation in the church I was a part of where I was a pastor where a man um, repeatedly had cheated on his wife and lied about it. Finally, she was clever enough to get evidence that he had cheated. I was called and... Uh, in the middle of the night, one night by this lady and me and another deacon went and had to tell this man he had to leave his home and watch, and watch his kids watched him leave. And this church, it's not a situation in this church here I'm talking about. It's another church. And uh, This this man, when I talked to him, I'd, I'd been meeting with him one-on-one for some time. He had lied to my face over and over and over about this. And even at this point, uh said you got to leave your home your wife don't want you here right now y'all have to work some things out and later on he said he 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 was done with her and and that very night he went back to the same woman and just lied just bold-faced lied about the whole thing but the more we counseled with him the more we talked with him he began to break down he wanted to come forward and and confess this to the church that he was wrong and he still struggled, but he was willing to go through counseling and different things, and and uh, it was hard because we were we were upset what he'd done to his family. You know, we kind of wanted to get him, but but he's expressing repentance. He, he's expressing and he's showing that he's willing to do some take some measures in his life. So as horrid as some of the stories that we found out about. When, once he began to express repentance, we, we said, "Well, we're not going to remove him from the church. That he, He's expressing repentance. He's struggling. But he's expressing repentance. And we're not going to let him serve in some certain capacities. So there's some wisdom that plays into all of this, right? But, but this third criteria, repentance, is sometimes hard to gauge and measure. Sometimes you can get fooled by what people say and they will, they will lie to you. So when we talk about discipline someone, this is, this is not some witch hunt. You're talking about Significant, outward, unrepentant. Let me address one question very quickly, which drives part of these sermons I've been preaching. What about disciplining people for non-attendance in the church? Maybe that doesn't seem significant to you. Like I said, all sin, that is sin, it's wrong. But what about someone who, who understands, first of all, there's a lot of people who join local churches like ours, and at the time they were not taught well about membership. They didn't understand that they were joining a church, didn't know anything about a church covenant and all this stuff. Hopefully a lot of you do now that have been through a membership class and heard some of these sermons, and you understand it. So what about somebody that understands that what it means to be part of the church, understands that what Scripture says about participating in life in the church and is able to be at church, a, physically able, so let's get all our qualifications out there. Physically able, yes. And they just say, "I'm not coming back. I, I just don't want to be there." What, what do you do about that? Well, you go to them just like you do anybody else, and you seek to restore them, you seek to love them, you seek to rescue them. And over time, you begin to, and we're not talking about sporadic, you know, hit and miss which that shouldn't be the case either, but we're talking about people that just, I'm not coming. I live here locally, but I'm just not coming back. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm just not going to church. Don't want to be there. That needs to be addressed, church. That is a sinning church member. If you don't address it, then what does the person do that is hit and miss? Well, this person's still a church member. If they wanted to come and vote, it's something they could vote. If they wanted to come and participate in the Lord's Supper, they can participate in the Lord's Supper. they got all the same privileges as I do, and I still come to church. Well, i just think I'll stop coming to church. And it affects the whole lump. So yes, it is an issue that the church family has to deal with. The sin of not being at church on a regular basis. What is regular? Well, that's something that takes wisdom and discernment and the church has to work through. Something our church family needs to work through. If we're to be the local manifestation of God's holy dwelling place that He's called us to be, and do what, and submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture, we cannot continue to overlook issues like that or any other sin. One more question. How do we know who is in and who is out? Verse twelve says this for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Well who's an outsider? Then it says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Who are those outside the church and who are those inside the church? Just, just let, me, let me ask you that question. Let's just suppose we didn't even have a membership role at all. How would we know who's inside our church and who's outside our church? Is it everybody that's here right now? If you've came here four or five times and met with this church family, okay, now we consider you inside the church. I mean, it gets really vague, don't it? That's why we have church membership. You can't do what Scripture says effectively if you don't have a formal church membership that you take seriously. Now, if you can have it and not take it seriously and not mean anything and not ever address church discipline or anything else, you might as well not have it at all. So who's in and who is out? Church membership is a corporate endorsement of a person's salvation, according to Mark Dever, I agree with that. Church membership, what we're saying, when we say yes, we want to vote and say this person should be a member of the church, is we're saying based on what this person tells us about the gospel and based on what we've observed about their life, we're all going to vote tonight at the business meeting that so-and-so, fill in the blank, that based on what they've told us, based on what we see, yes, we believe they're born-again Christians. Because we're not going to let somebody join the church that's not a Christian, right? Amen? So we believe, yes, we believe they're a Christian. So now this person who's in the church, in our church, local church, God forbid, is in wayward sin. They're not coming anymore. How do we know they're not? I mean, we ain't seen them in a year, two years. How do we know they're not even in sexual immorality, bringing reproach upon the church? Well, i got my member of that church down there. What's the pastor's name? You know? Um. How can we continue to say about somebody an unrepentant sin to keep them as a church member? We're continuing to say we believe based on what they say about the gospel and based on what we see in their life, we believe that's a true Christian right there. Do we want to keep do we want to do that? Absolutely not. They may say the right thing about the gospel, but the way they're living is completely opposite of the gospel. And so, out of love, we do what verse 13 says. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. You go to that person, you, you love them. It's not an automatic thing. Sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a long process with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. I went through one family in relation to that at another church, and we probably dealt with this family for a year and a half. I mean, meeting with them personally, pleading with them. Um, So it's not a rush. The aim is restoration. When it comes clear that's not going to happen and it's not been repented, then it has to be dealt with eventually. And so you deal with it. And you say to that person, even with the church gathered publicly. Brother, we love you. We're saying brother, but we're not even sure we can call you brother anymore. Based on, despite the fact of what you say about Jesus, your life says the opposite. We're not saying you're not saved. Church membership don't make you a member. Y'all understand that? Am I being clear? But based on how you are living your life, we can no longer... Together as a church, say, we believe you're a Christian. We hope you are, and we hope us saying this will be a means of bringing you to true repentance and even true salvation if you've never experienced it. But, but we can't keep doing that. You're no longer welcome as a, as a member of this church. The Bible says not to even eat with such a one. So the application of church discipline may vary in its severity, But if we're going to do what Scripture says here in Matthew 18, like Derek read this morning, it's a weighty thing. In fact, to be honest with you, it's draining me to preach it. But Let me end with you on this note. Last Sunday in our Apostles' Creed study we're doing on Sunday nights, I know the youth have been through this, Matt Chandler is the one that came up with uh, or developed this study, we're, we're going by. He asked some questions to the church. And I asked him at our church last Sunday night and got some interesting answers. So I'm going to ask you some questions just really quick. You can, you can raise your hand or not raise your hand. Uh, some of these you might not want to, but how many of you have a college degree? Just, just raise your hand. All right. How many of you say, barely made it through high school? You know, or you say, ah, high school diploma, that's all I got so far. That's all I'm going to get, not get no more. Okay. How many of you say, uh, I've got a Midwestern accent. Midwestern accent, Illinois accent, others would say, sign me up for hillbilly school. You know, I'm hillbilly all the way. Donnie, you better raise your hand. And how many would say, maybe you shouldn't raise your hand on this, that there's been times in your life when you've experimented with drugs? A lot of you probably wouldn't say that. And how many would say, never, never even thought about it. How many would say, I was raised in a Christian home. Praise the Lord. Would you raise your hand on that one? Could you do that? Some of you? How many of you would say, not me, not raised in a Christian home? I asked that question last Sunday night, that last question. I was amazed about how many people raised their hand that were not raised in Christian homes. And what I wanted to say about that was, look at what God has done despite that. See His grace, His kindness, His goodness. And His purpose in asking those questions like that, my purpose just now is to say, look, Look how diverse we are and different we are, and yet the gospel has united us and brought us together we wouldn't even a lot of us wouldn't even know each other if it were not for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and He has brought us together as a church family. A lot of you have known each other for a long time. Some of you are really hurting because some of the people that's been here a long time are not here anymore i I, I get that I understand that, but here we are, this is who we are, and we're this church family. And we laugh together. Sometimes we get mad at each other. Sometimes we misunderstand each other. All those type of things happen in a family. But when it, what it really comes down to, all these, this church family that God's brought together in our life together as a church, when we look around this room right now, we want to see each other in heaven someday. And bow at the feet of Jesus and worship Him forever. And those of you who don't like to sing, you're going to be singing then. And the truth of the matter is is that God will hold us fast. As we're going to sing this last song. He will hold us fast in our life together as a church. Our life together as a church is a means of our perseverance in that. When we're part of a church that loves us enough to teach us the gospel. And loves us enough to go to us when we're in wayward sin. So that we will persevere. And we'll see the true condition of our heart. Man, that's a church I want to be part of. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed once for all for our sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. Repent and turn to Him for forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that You love us enough, Lord, that You give us the church You give us this gift and give us Your Word. Help us, Lord, to submit to Your Word. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters here this morning that, that may be struggling with sin in their life. God, that You would so graciously and kindly speak to them, woo their hearts, grant a repentant heart, God, I ask that you would help us be the church when we see other believers, professing believers in our church family, struggling even with sin. That we would not be gossiping, but we would mourn; not be arrogant, but but mourn, Lord. And 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 if you place it upon our hearts, even as individuals, that we would we would love them enough to go and and talk. Lord, thank you for the gospel and what you've done for us. And we thank you for the truth that anyone is here that would call upon the name of the Lord, they would be saved. And so we pray you grant that salvation to those that are lost among us today. We pray for prodigals amongst us, Lord. We know that they'll be welcomed. So Lord, do that as well for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and we we'll sing this closing song together. And if you would like to come and pray or talk about anything at all, you come as we sing.